0: Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. We're trying to cover a large chunk of territory today. We're not going to read all of Acts 4 to 8. but This sermon is partially review. We've looked in detail at chapters 4, 5, and the first part of 6. But chapter 7 is a biggie. The longest speech in Acts. Almost half of Acts is made up of speeches or sermons. But Stephen's speech is the granddaddy of them all. Now, what's fascinating about this is that Stephen's speech is all flashback. It's not new material, it's stuff that's familiar to you. If you started in Genesis and have read through to get to Acts, you know everything. <laughs> in Stephen's speech. So the goal of today's sermon is primarily to understand what this speech is doing here. Why this review? We're 25% into the book, right? Chapter 7 of 28. We're a quarter of the way there. And suddenly, we go back to the beginning. To the call of Abraham. So let's read starting there. Acts 7, verse 2. And Stephen said, Men... Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on, but even when Abraham had no child, He promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would sojourn in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them four hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac begot and circumcised Jacob, and Jacob begot and circumcised the twelve patriarchs. So we have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have Jacob, and then Stephen tells the story of Israel in Egypt, how Moses was born, how Moses saw the burning bush, how he went out into the wilderness. Moses takes up most of this speech. And then... Verse 35 This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And he brought them out, and after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who is in the church in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. So what did they do? Well, they worshipped the golden calf. Verse 42, God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. And Stephen, to back that up, quotes from Amos. And then verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of wilderness of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern he'd seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor with God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. So we've had this crazy run-through of history. Stephen is on trial for his life. They're angry with him. They say he's spoken against Moses and against God, and his idea of a defense speech is to say, I haven't spoken against Moses and against God. Let me tell you about Moses. Let me tell you how God dealt with our fathers 1,500, 2,000 years ago. And so Stephen recites this history of Israel, and Luke quotes him on it, to wind up at this point, verse 48, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? So that's Stephen's first point. Right, what's the point, Stephen? Stephen? Why are you telling us the history of Israel? Well, point number one, the temple is obsolete. The temple was never able to contain God, and the temple is not able to contain God now. Therefore, the temple is going down. The last four chapters have detailed the battles between the apostles and the temple establishment. We've looked at that. Stephen now tells the whole history of God's dealings with his people in order to say, Temple's over. We're done with this temple. And of course, they were about 40 years later. The Roman army would come and destroy the temple, tear down every last rock of it. And now, of course, it's still destroyed. There's a mosque on that spot, which has stood there since the 8th century A.D., and appears likely to stand there for some time to come. So that's Stephen's first point. His next point, verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. So well, that's second point. You don't listen to the prophets. Temple establishment has the word of God and doesn't care what it says. And then Stephen's final point, you who received the law by the direction of angels and did not keep it. And so he says that, and that's too much, and at that point they kill him. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, they gnashed at him with their teeth, Verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord, cast him out of the city, and stoned him. So why does Luke tell us all of this about the history of Israel? Well, it relates to his overall point. Remember, his overall point is the certainty of the kingdom. Jesus really is reigning. So he starts and ends his book with that. The temple is the frame of Acts. Jesus really is reigning, and therefore, as the narrative moves from Acts 4 to 8, he takes us through three different points regarding this, climaxing in Stephen's speech. The first point is that Christ is reigning despite opposition. There are people who are opposed to to the reign of christ including the temple establishment then the second point is that the reign of christ produces good results it gets rid of the obsolete temple it cares for widows it reaches outcasts and foreigners see that that's part of the narrative sweep and then finally and the longest section of this is the history of the reign of christ we can know that Jesus is really reigning because His reign didn't start on Easter Sunday. His reign started long before and Stephen takes it back to the call of Abraham. All the way back to Genesis chapter 12. You can be certain that Jesus really reigns because His reign has been going on for a long time. It's not something... New, Not something that was just invented or just cooked up six weeks ago. It's been happening. We've been building to this moment for a long time. And that's why Stephen's speech is so long. So long that we didn't read the whole thing. We read part of it, summarized part of it. So that's what we'll look at this morning in the remainder of this sermon. The reign of Christ, overcoming opposition, reaching and blessing new people, And it's ancient foundations in God's dealings with the patriarchs, with Israel in the wilderness, with Moses, and then with David and Solomon and the temple. So we start with the opposition to the reign of Christ. We've looked at this pretty heavily, starting in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John are arrested and spend the night in jail, and then repeatedly come into collusion with the temple establishment. So that's the external opposition. They're arrested two times. All the apostles are beaten. One of the apostles or one of the deacons is murdered at the end of chapter 7. The church stands against a lot of external opposition in these chapters. Same with internal opposition. We have Ananias and Sapphira. Satan fills the heart of Ananias to lie. By his lies, Ananias poses a threat to the church. Think about it. How many churches have been brought down by liars? How many churches have been brought down by big donations attached to even bigger egos? That was Ananias, for sure. Here's a big donation. Why Why aren't you all very impressed with me? How much I just gave. Or... Hebrews versus Hellenists, in chapter 6, ethnic controversy between two groups that are incredibly similar but just can't seem to get along. <coughs> that comes close to destroying the early church in Acts 6. It's foiled by the appointment, as we saw last week, of administrators who make sure that people are treated fairly, that the charitable distribution goes to people of both ethnic groups. So Christ is reigning despite external and internal opposition. That's one major point of Acts 4 through 8. The second point, what is the result of his reign? When Jesus reigns, what happens? Well, as we saw in chapter 3, the temple's boundaries are breached. The lame man couldn't go into the temple. He had sat outside the gate for 20 years. Peter and John come along, heal him, and he immediately goes through the gate. He's allowed in where he was never allowed in before. When Jesus reigns, people get to come into the presence of God, symbolized by the temple. When Jesus reigns, the temple leadership is discredited. Those who say, God lives with me, and then live in a way that shows that no, God does not live with you. Uh-uh. Not the way you carry on. Right? When they had further threatened them, chapter 4, verse 21, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people. The temple leadership hates the apostles, can't touch the apostles with anything substantive. Right? I compared it last time, or a few weeks ago, to state universities Doing something about binge drinking. They're all opposed to it. But none of them is willing to enact a policy that would actually stop it. And so it is with the temple establishment. They are opposed to the preaching of the apostles. But are they willing to effectively end it? No. That's because they've been discredited. And in fact, God's presence moves to the church, the temple is abandoned and then what else happens when christ reigns what happens to the church well the church multiplies we've seen that repeatedly that tons of people come into the church when jesus reigns the church cares for widows rather than saying oh well she lost her husband guess it's tough to be a widow in this world the church reaches out and says widow what do you need how can we help you gives food on a daily basis in this early church. And also the church is scattered when Jesus reigns. That happens in chapter 8. At that time, a great persecution against the church arose and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Just because Jesus is in charge doesn't mean that the church is always happy. Or that the church always gets to be settled and stay where it is. No, the church is scattered... But in that scattering, the church reaches people, again, who were excluded from access to God's presence under the old way. Samaritans. The Samaritans had their own temple. They didn't come to Jerusalem. They didn't worship with the Jerusalem establishment. But Philip goes and preaches to them and brings them to know Jesus. Philip also preaches to this eunuch. A man, as one commentator put it, of murky, physical, ethnic, and religious status. Luke literally calls him a man, a eunuch. It's like, well, which is he? And he's going to worship God in the temple. So is he a Jew? Because Jews go worship in the temple. But he's an Ethiopian. Is Does that mean that he's black? Well, it doesn't, right? Luke doesn't say eunuch, African, Jew, Man, what is this fellow? Well, it really doesn't matter because he's a Christian. That's the upshot of the story. You don't have to be Jew, Gentile, whole or fixed. God can still save you. Jesus still brings you under his reign. So that's kind of the brief summary of what's going on in the narrative sweep of chapters 4 to 8. Let's turn to the history of Christ's reign and how Stephen's speech fits into this history of Jesus reigning. As we already said, it fits into it like this. It tells us about the prehistory of the reign of Christ. Before the book of Acts opens, before the New Testament opens, before there was ever such a nation as Israel... <coughs> where was the reign of Christ? Well, the answer is that it was already calling Abraham and preparing this family, the family of Abraham, who would be the family through which God sent the Messiah, through whom God brought his reign to earth. So, Stephen is showing how God's present work is related to his past work how what god is doing now in establishing the reign of christ is related to what he did then in building up abraham and the patriarchs and the nation of israel the first thing i want you to notice is that stephen's speech is about the glory of god we have looked at frames before but notice this one verse two of chapter seven Men, brothers and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So Stephen starts with the God of glory. You know, that phrase doesn't appear very often in the Bible. But he winds up with the God of glory too. In reverse order, verse 55, He being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. So we have God of glory, glory of God as this frame around his speech. The story of the reign of Christ begins and ends with the glory of the God of glory. Now what does that mean? It means that God is already totally sufficient, totally glorious in and of himself. God wasn't in need of a kingdom So he had to send Jesus to build himself something impressive so he could become glorious. He was already glorious at the beginning. God is building this kingdom. Christ is reigning out of his fullness, not out of his emptiness. Most of us don't have any experience of reigning. Maybe a more pertinent analogy that I think we can glom onto a little better is parenthood. Some people have children out of emptiness. Nobody loves me. If I have a child, the child will love me. Let me have a child, and then the child will fill my emptiness. Now, you don't need a PhD in psychology to hear that and be like, no, don't do it. Don't do that to your child. The child cannot fill your emptiness. It doesn't work that way. The child needs you to fill his or her emptiness. You have to fill that baby up with love. Don't have a child to fill your emptiness. But if God had started with no glory, if God had started empty and said, I'm going to build me a kingdom and that kingdom will be the thing that fills me, the thing that makes my life worth it, then, right, God would be that needy, terrible parent who creates us and then sucks us dry trying to get the love and the affirmation and the meaningfulness that he can't find anywhere else. Stephen cuts that off right at the beginning and says, no, before God ever started this, He was full. He was glorious. He was the family that said, we're a family. We're full of love. We're full of joy. We have what we need and we want to share it with our child. Let's have a child who can join in this fullness and share in the blessings of the family. So God starts with His glory. The God of glory, Right, first word out of Stephen's mouth after he says, listen, listen, the God of glory showed up, called Abraham. And at the end, when the story of Israel is told, When Christ is resurrected from the dead, verse 54, well, 55, Stephen gazes into heaven, sees the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. God is not more glorious at the end of the story than He was at the beginning. He's glorious all the way through, and from that fullness of glory, He calls a people to Himself to participate in His fullness. To wallow in and bask in the glory of God. That's Stephen's message. In a nutshell. If somebody begins and ends with the same thing, you know that that's what they're talking about in between those two marker points. What he's talking about is God's glory. And what does he have to say in particular about the glory of God? Well, The glory of God is manifested in many places before the Jerusalem temple. Stephen has gotten into trouble for questioning the temple. Right, Verse 14 of chapter 6, We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Will destroy this temple. That's the accusation. Stephen is teaching against the temple. So Stephen says, No, God is glorious, and the glory of God is not tied to this building. God's glory was free to come and go long before the temple was ever erected. And it did. Here are some of the places where the glory of God showed up. First place, the God of glory appeared in Mesopotamia. Right? Mesopotamia is just as exotic and foreign to Stephen's audience as it is to you and me. They're like, whoa! mini syllable Greek word. So far away, Mesopotamia. (laughs) We could just call it the land between the rivers. That's what it means in English. That doesn't sound so exotic. It also sounds like many other places. But the area between the rivers, between the Tigris and Euphrates, that's where God showed his glory for the first recorded time, kind of once we come into recorded history in Genesis 12. The God of glory appeared there. Therefore, he's not tied to this temple. He could appear 800 miles that way. That means he's not necessarily stuck, chained up inside the temple. Where else did God's glory appear? Verse 9, Egypt. The patriarchs sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. God isn't tied to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. God was in Mesopotamia. God was in Egypt. God's glory is not stuck in this temple. Again, Stephen is sharing this history to make a particular point. Where else did God's glory appear? Well, verse 30. It appeared at Sinai. When some 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. God's glory can be... Anywhere God chooses to manifest it. The glory of God doesn't have to be in this temple building. That's the issue. Where is Christ's reign? Where is God's glory? It's not just stuck in the temple. The caretakers of the temple, the temple establishment, had it stuck in their head that God would be in the temple and that He would never leave it. This is the place where God is, period. Right. How many local churches do you know who've got that same idea stuck in their head? We are it. The only true church, the only perfect church. God is here. He will never leave us no matter what we do because we're it. That's what Stephen is up against, and so he's telling them, no, God appeared in Sinai. God appeared in the wilderness. Verse 36, He brought them out after He had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness 40 years. God has shown Himself all over the map. Egypt, Red Sea, wilderness. In fact... God dwelt in the tabernacle. Verse 44, Our our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. God lived in a tent, for heaven's sake. What does living in a tent mean? It means you can move around. That you can pull up stakes and go to the next campsite. There's a reason none of you live in a tent. You've all made the decision... I'm going to be here for a while. It's worth pouring hundreds of thousands of dollars into a pile of lumber and concrete. Because I don't want to move every two nights. If I was moving every two nights, I could buy a tent for $29.95. God lived in a tent. And so the reign of Christ, the glory of God has appeared in so many places, and it's going to move out beyond this temple. That's what Stephen is trying to tell them. Of course, you can tell people their history, even kind of a a selective narration of it, and usually get away with it. But when you start to apply it to the present moment, suddenly they tend to get antsy that happens to Stephen right? he says God's glory was manifested historically in all kinds of places well they sat and listened to that but when he moves into God's glory is manifested now they get really upset he gazed into heaven verse 55 and saw the glory of God so that's okay they're mad at him they're gnashing their teeth at him And Stephen sees God's glory and he can't resist saying, one more point. I was telling you that God's glory has appeared in many locations. Let me tell you where it is right now. And said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord cast him out of the city, and stoned him. This is the statement that got Stephen killed. (coughs) Describing how God appeared in the past, they may not have been real eager to hear it, but they couldn't disagree with him, because it was right there in the same Bible they had. But when he says, the reign of Christ is manifested now, and guess what? It's not in the temple. It's in heaven where the Messiah I worship, the Christ I worship is standing at the right hand of the Father they were like no no the glory of God is not manifested in heaven with the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father right now and if you say that we will kill you so Stephen says it and they kill him but if This is the statement we Christians stake everything on. This is Luke's payoff statement. This is why he gave us 50-some verses of the history of Israel. Because Luke's point is that actually, yes, the reign of Christ is happening at the Father's right hand right now. We're not in the Old Testament. God isn't popping up in Mesopotamia, Egypt, the Red Sea, the wilderness, etc. God doesn't have a tent that he moves around in anymore. God reigns from heaven, and he reigns from heaven through his Son, Jesus, who is at his right hand in heaven. That's why Luke gave us so many verses of Stephen's speech. To say, yes, God's glory, God's reign appeared in many places. God's reign now, the rule of Christ is taking place from heaven if the glory of god isn't there it isn't anywhere right the temple is destroyed the tabernacle is lost the ark of the covenant is not in some government warehouse the ark of the covenant has vanished out of history and therefore we stake everything on christ being at the father's right hand showing his glory there reigning from there that's what all of acts is about as luke tells us at the one quarter mark a fourth of the way in jesus reigns from heaven he already said that of course by showing us in chapter one jesus ascending up into heaven to go back to the father when the cloud took him from their sight. but luke goes on to say not only is the glory of christ manifested now at the father's right hand The glory of Christ is manifested now in the testimony of his saints. And so Luke shows us a bunch of different people. The apostles testify to the glory of God. That's how people are being converted. Stephen testifies to the glory of God. That's why he gets stoned. Philip in chapter 8 testifies to the glory of God and thereby converts the Samaritans and the Ethiopian eunuch. And others, right? chapter 8, verse 4, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Ordinary Christians testify to the glory of God. Tell their neighbors, you should become a Christian because God isn't needy. God is full. Other idols, other gods demand that you sacrifice to them. God provided a sacrifice for himself because he's full. He's not interacting with you out of His need for you to care for Him. He cares for you. That's how Christ's reign advanced. It cares for widows. Right? In a society where women can't own property, it's pretty tough to be a widow. It cares for eunuchs. Which I dare say it's never fun to be a eunuch. The kingdom of God shows the glory of Christ, carries on the history of Israel to its appointed end, gathers those who are outcasts, brings them to know the Christ who is full of His own glory and who came to share it with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are glorious. We thank You that the story begins and ends with your glory, that showed itself to Abraham in Mesopotamia long ago and far away, and that now is resident in heaven, and the Son of Man sits at your right hand. Father, help us to understand the story Luke is telling. Help us to be convicted in our hearts of the certainty that Jesus reigns, and help us to eagerly submit ourselves to his reign to be true Christians who believe that Jesus died and forgave our sins and that He lives and rules us right now. And Father, when we sin against You, when we don't obey that rule of Christ, teach us to go to You and seek Your forgiveness, to be restored. Don't let us double down on our sin like the temple establishment did. Lord, we pray all these things, thanking You for the majesty and glory of Your kingdom your fullness of glory, which leads you to call your children to yourself to share that glory. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.